Hello world, I'm Darren Adams, and this is Juice Worth the Squeeze. So a little bit about me. I'm an operations executive and a business junkie. I am Chicago dreaming by way of Kellogg, MGO Blue U, and Cleveland. I'm a husband to one and father to two. This podcast was created for two reasons. First, because I'm a business junkie and I love all things entrepreneurial. So I've been fascinated with this idea of how founders go from zero to hero. So we're gonna talk a lot about that and hear a lot from founders. Second, I'm just as fascinated with this crazy idea called purpose and how specifically how people's purpose morphs as they move and make their way through this crazy thing that we call life. The second reason I created this podcast was because I was tired of hearing the same boring discussion from founders and business leaders answering the same boring questions in the same predictable way. You've all heard it. So tell me about dot, dot, dot scaling. Tell me about beating the competition, economic conditions in your industry, financing rounds, hiring the right people. Don't get me wrong. All that stuff is super important and given the right context, all of it is super interesting. But this ground is so well covered that that is not what this podcast is gonna be about. I wanted to create a podcast focused on the why, not so much the how. So this podcast is going to be where a place where founders and executives, politicians, famous people, not so famous people can come have a drink, let their hair down and reflect on the journey that they call life. Talk about love, community, purpose. Talk about why they're running the organizations that they're running in this crazy time and how they're doing it successfully. I'm certain the world does not need another podcast right now. In fact, it's, the market's overly saturated. And I'm not sure how people are going to actually respond to this, to be honest with you. But I'm hoping that this does provide a little bit of inspiration for people. We're going to have some fun and we're going to be talking about some crazy things like faith. What does it really mean to live? What's close to these people's hearts? How people find meaning? What does it mean to give to your community? What does it mean to be at peace with yourself? What does it mean to be human? We're going to talk about regrets and we're going to talk about this idea of seeking success versus seeking simplicity. So just like most good podcasts, I want your feedback. Maybe these are the right things. Maybe they're the wrong things. We're going to find out as we go. I'm going to try to keep this podcast around 45 minutes to an hour, but you never know. People tend to get long-winded when you talk about these kinds of things. So we're going to we're gonna sit back and we're going to listen. We're going to try to listen as long as we can, right? I'm going to post about a pod every week. And please bear with me. You know, sometimes it might be one, sometimes it might be two. Depends on, on people's schedule. So we're going to, you know, be uh, working by day, podcasting by night. But give me your feedback because we want to make this better. And, and this is going to be a journey that we're going to go on together. So my hope is that, you know, in some infinitesimally small way that this podcast is going to help inspire you and give you that weekly dose of reflection so that you can see life through someone else's eyes. And maybe, just maybe, the juice will be worth the squeeze. Thank you for listening. Hey guys, another beautiful day in the neighborhood. This is Juice Worth Squeeze podcast, and I'm your host, Darren Adams. 
Our guest takeover for the week are two dear friends of mine, Nathan and Teresa Brandon. I met both of them while I was an undergrad at the University of Michigan, and it has been a great pleasure of mine to see them transition from the enormous success they've had on the track to the enormous success they've had off the track as it relates to what they're doing currently in their home innovation business in Cleveland and Teresa being an all-star realtor. So a little bit about both of our guests before we get started. Nate is a three-time Olympian in track and field representing Canada in 2008, 2012, 2016 in the 1500 meter run. He was a member of six world track and field championship teams, three Commonwealth Games, and a world athletic final. He is a four-time NCAA champion, 11-time All-American, and six-time Big Ten champion at the University of Michigan. To say that he's accomplished in track and field is an understatement. He was named Michigan Athlete of the Year and inducted to the Michigan Track and Field Hall of Fame, along with the Preston High School Hall of Fame, the Waterloo County Hall of Fame, and the City of Cambridge Hall of Fame. He was the Cambridge Athlete of the Year five times, which is the most by any athlete. Currently, Nate is in his eighth season as the head cross-country and track and field coach at St. Edward High School in Cleveland, Ohio. Go Eagles! And as mentioned before, he started a renovation business, uh, Citrus Properties, in December 2017 and has since flipped 12 homes. Teresa, or T, was born in Cleveland, attended Amherst High School and also the University of Michigan. She's a two-time high school state champion in the 800 meters in consecutive years and has won multiple high school conference championships and was a conference MVP. At Michigan, she was a two-time Big Ten champion in the 800 meter and indoor DMR. She was an NCAA champ in the indoor DMR and a two-time All-American. She's a member of 12 Big Ten championship teams, an academic All-American, and she was inducted into the Amherst High School Hall of Fame, the Lorraine County Hall of Fame, and the Lorraine Sports Hall of Fame. And she's worked her entire career in sales leading up to her transition to uh, her career in real estate. They both reside in Avon Lake and they have two beautiful children, Gianna and Grayson. So without further ado, please welcome my guests, Nathan and Teresa Brannon. Welcome to the pod, guys. Thanks, Aaron. So, Nate, let's talk a little bit about your experience you being a former Olympic athlete. Let's talk about your journey getting to Michigan. Um, I know at the time, it was kind of, I got a front row seat. I got a front row seat to this. Nate was actually competing with one of my good friends from high school to be the best 800 meter runner in the country. And Nate chose Michigan. One of my buddies actually chose to go to Tennessee. And from there, there was a brief rivalry for about a year, roughly right. And then Nate basically dominated the scene in the 800 meter and then the 1500 at Michigan. So I'd love to hear that a little of a replay for you. And then then T, obviously you had your experience there and we'll go to you next. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So I grew up in Cambridge, Ontario, Canada. In high school, I was one of the top, um, I guess, 800, 1500 runners in North America at the time. So I was being recruited by a lot of schools and it came down to two and obviously one was University of Michigan. So being at least as smart as I was in high school, I realized running is only going to take me so long, so far that academics probably should be a priority here. Um, so with Michigan being so strong academically, it made sense that that would be a very good option to go to if I was looking post-collegiately and post-athletically. Um, and then I just really hit it off with the coach there, and we always had a, a really strong contingent of Canadian milers specifically going to Michigan. So right. Kevin Sullivan, Jason Canton, Steve Lawrence. So there was arguably the, the, the best 
middle distance runners from the last kind of 20 years all went to Michigan. So that kind of paved the road for me to, to go there. Well, you're telling part of the story, right? Because there was a book written about this. Because at the time, there was you, Alan Webb, and then there was also Mark, who was who went one going to Tennessee. But you, and then Dathan Ritzenheim, I believe as well, was also were also looking at Michigan. So I think the group of you were all thinking of potentially going to Michigan, and then ultimately it wound up being you and Alan that wound up going to Michigan. Yep. Yeah. So arguably, we actually might have had the best class ever in North America coming out of high school in 2001. So myself, I ran 3:59 in a mile. Alan Webb ran 3.53 in the mile to break the, the national record. Right. Um, I ran 146 at a high school. It was number five in the world that year. We had Ryan Hall, who had gone 401, went to Stanford. Jason Rittenheim, a Michigan guy, Mark Sylvester. So the five of us were five of probably the best runners in North America in almost ever. Arguably so ever. That, yeah, I think you're, you're, yeah. Being, you're being absolutely modest because... You guys were the best runners at that time ever, especially for the what you guys in terms of like breaking records that North American records did. I'm not sure did I can't even remember with what what Alan did in terms of breaking potentially a world record, but I thought it was only in the North American record. But more importantly, I think you know for what that class that that actually wound up coming to Michigan, and then ultimately Nick Willis came a year later. I think mm-hmm. that 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 to me, and I you know I was a former track guy. I'll say I was a track guy. I was not a runner because I was not very, I was not fast enough to technically be a runner. But that was a pretty remarkable contingent of folks to run together, ultimately, right? Yeah. So part of that unique thing was that four of the five of us were all looking at Michigan. So myself, Alan Webb, Mark Sylvester, and Dathan Rittenheim. And obviously, Dathan ended up going to University of Colorado, and Mark went to University of Tennessee. So ended up just being the two of us that went to Michigan. But no school in history has ever had two sub-four-minute milers the same year. Actually, up until about three years ago, there's never been two sub-four-minute milers in the same year out of high school ever. And so that year, there was two of us, and we both went to Michigan. So that was the first time. And, and then ultimately, they, they wrote a book about kind of the, our first-year experience at Michigan and being the first-ever pair of sub-four-milers to, to go to college together. So it was kind of we were starting what was going to be potentially a, a dynasty at Michigan, which maybe was. I don't know how you look at it. Well, I, I think, well, if you guys look at the success that you guys individually had, I think there's no doubt about what, you know, I think that classifies as a dynasty for you, for the individual success that you, you guys were able to achieve, for sure. There's a lot to unpack there, and we're going to come back to it. But Teresa also has a very interesting story as well, right? Because your wife ultimately came to Michigan. She was, I believe, T, weren't you top 10 when uh, coming out of high school in the 800 as well? Nationally? Yeah. Yeah, I probably was. I was a two-time state champ for Ohio in the mm-hmm. 800. Nationals. We met at Nationals. Monsoon. Were you there too? Yeah, yeah. It was like pouring and we had to take cover. Yeah, I think I, I was fourth maybe in the eight. So that, that that's top 10. I absolutely remember that race because it was absolutely pouring. And I was like, there's no way they're going to run this race. And then they kicked it off and there you went. Yes. I mean, I was recruited by a lot of schools and I had a hard time deciding if I wanted to stay in Ohio and be close to home or go up north. But obviously, 
you know, as well as I do. If you go to Michigan and you're from Ohio, <laughs> you're going to get some flack. Actually, Ohio State didn't recruit me. And I just told my family, hey, I'm not playing football. I'm running. So, you know, Michigan had a great history of middle distance on the women's side. And I mean, when I was there, we went to a Big Ten championship. So between cross country and an outdoor track. So it was definitely the right decision for me at the time. Yeah, I think one of the things that I thought was absolutely remarkable about that time, you know, just going through Michigan and going through the program at the time, and I got to get a kind of a front row seat to this, was just how remarkable both the women's program was in terms of team accomplishments and what you guys were able to accomplish in terms of just winning cross-country Big Ten championship, indoor Big Ten championship, outdoor Big Ten championship. Then I think you guys won that consecutively for like three years, wasn't it? Yeah, we had um, one triple crown when I was there. Yeah. Cross-country, indoor, outdoor track. Yeah. And I mean, I was on the national championship relay team, the DMR indoors in 2005. So it was a lot of fun. We definitely weren't the underdogs going into the Big Ten meets. And it was it was fun to, you know, ride that out with everybody. Yeah, I, I always thought it was interesting. You know, one of the things that really stood out to me within both parts of the program was there was the depth and breadth that you guys had, that the women's program had in terms of just across both sprints, middle mm -hmm. distance and long distance. There just was just national talent all over the place. And then on the on the men's program, we had Nate, you know, we had Alan for a year, which by the way, it's funny that you mentioned, you know, you weren't going pro. And I think I couldn't believe it, right? Like the first year that Alan, after his freshman year, decided that he was going pro. I was like, huh, <laughs> I never thought that that was possible, but we were breaking a lot of barriers there. And then we had some really strong field guys and then one or two really strong sprinters. Uh, but we didn't really have the depth that the women's program had. But in terms of like how you guys coalesced, I always thought it was like fascinating how the women's team coalesced so well. And the men's team, yeah. we did, I love to hear how that kind of like came together because like it was such a different team structure that I think that you guys had than what the men's program had. Yeah, especially when we were there. So we were obviously freshmen together and we came in at kind of a unique time with the program. So it was very separate. We had the sprint program, the distance program, and the field program. Right. It wasn't so much of a, a track team. No. And looking back, like I won four NCAA titles, six Big Ten championships individually, 11-time All-American, but I, ha I don't have any Big Ten team titles. They won the that. Has 11. Yeah, I think they won the year after we all left. Like a year and a half yeah, after we left. Yeah, once we left, the team dynamics started to change, where there was much more bonding among the groups. Mm -hmm. And I think that stems more from the, the coaching staff than anything else. They just became more of a, a, a unit instead of two separate, three separate groups. Yeah. Um, and I look back at my time, that's one thing I, I definitely missed. It would have been nice to win. And I think that would have brought everyone together because it was like, and I don't mean to sound rude, but it was, Sometimes me and Nick felt like we were pulling a team. Like we oh, you were 40 points in the Big Ten one year <laughs> of 85. <laughs> you absolutely, hey, by the way, I feel like I always contributed at least a point to a half a point every time. <laughs> I, I never, I always had at least a point to a half a point, at least. But no, I, I felt the same way. I, I always felt like, so my senior year, we our team kind of coalesced and we won a state championship in track. There was no reason for us to have won. It, it, everything kind of fell into place. And then everybody was kind of, we put all the, we put all, everybody into everything so that we'd give ourselves a chance to win. 
And then when I got to Michigan, I always found it interesting that I don't feel like we ever really tried to really do that. I always kind of wondered if that was driven more so about trying to, because you guys did so well individually, but like across like all the other relay events, it was always such a kerfuffle. There wasn't much of a team dynamic there. Yeah, for sure. And I could, I could feel it right from Ron. So Ron Warhurst was the head coach and he got me and Nick ready for nationals. Yeah. And he always said like, the focus is to, to try to be on the podium at nationals. But I'll say hands down, I went to every Big Ten championship and, and ran as hard as I could to try to win a title for, the, for a team title. Can I tell you my and favorite I, I moment? I really wanted to, that was one thing I missed. We, we never did. And, and never that's close. why I would run four events at, at Big Ten to three events. Can I tell you my most favorite memory of your entire career from, from my perspective? Yeah. You were, it was at Ohio State. And I think you were running, it was either the eight or the mile. And somehow you got, in, you had gotten tripped on the, uh, on the last, on the second lap. Yeah, yeah. It was second to last lap. And you were, looked like you're out of it. And I'll never forget you running everybody down and like <laughs> blood was coming out of your leg and it was a nasty fall you took. It wasn't like it was a, like most people would have been just like, I don't know if it was, if it was like the Canadian hockey, hockey player in you or what, but like, I, I'll never forget you just like digging it out and being like, I was like, oh my God, this guy really, he wants to win. And so I, I never could square that circle why there was so much competition there in you and trying to just come back in that race because you had everything to go for in regionals and nationals. So you could have probably just been like, all right, whatever, Big Ten Championship, nothing. But you didn't. That yeah, no, it, it's, it's because it, it mattered to me. And like I said, every, every time we went to Big Tens, like me and Nick, both of us would, would fight as hard as we could to try to bring home a team championship. And unfortunately, we never did, but that was a big thing. And like, as fun as it is to win individual stuff, the best memories I have was winning like a, a team GMR title at yeah, nationals. The indoor. Sure. And it would have been the same at Big Ten. If we could have won a team title, that would have been just as, as memorable as, as an individual national championship. Yeah. I'd love to, well, one of the questions that we always, there's, there's two things that we, we kind of jumped right into it. One thing that we always start the pot off with is we always started off with a drink because this is, we're just having fun here. So I'm a, or you're obviously in bed, Nate. So I don't know, maybe you do, maybe you have a drink, maybe you don't. Um, T, how about you? Do you have a drink? No, not with me, just water. But just water? if I did, I'd probably have a glass of cab. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, so I was in Fort Wayne and I got some bourbon and I got this bourbon, it's called Hotel Tango. Nice. Yeah, yeah, it's actually pretty good. I don't have a refined palate, so I can't talk about what the taste is, but it's good. <laughs> One of my second question that I always ask everybody. Um, so I'm a big fan of basketball, as you guys know. And my favorite podcast for basketball is Knuckleheads. And they always ask everybody the same question right at the beginning. When you first got to the league, who busted your ass? Not really relevant in this context because you guys didn't play in the NBA, but kind of relevant for track. What was that it, when you were running track both of you, because both of you, well, T, when you had the college, because both of you guys ran really at a national level. I only ran at a conference level, which is everybody gets to do conference level as long as you make the team. So it's not really <laughs> that big of an accomplishment. But at a national level, what was that race or that moment? Or even, Nate, when you were competing on, at the Olympic level, where you were like, oh, shit, this is serious. 
I've got to really get better and oh shit, I can really compete. I can really, I can really stick in this. Yeah. So mine was in high school when I was like, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm really good and not in a confident, like a cocky way, just like, Hey, I can do something with this. So in high school, I was a good runner. I won nine provincial championships, like nine state state titles. Yeah. So essentially almost every race. I never lost from my, my sophomore year on. And it was my senior year where I was running the, the mile, two mile. My coach brought me down to the 800 to try it. And I, that's when I ran 146. And it ranked me fifth in the world that year. And I didn't really understand the, the times. I was like, oh, 146, that's cool. And then when you see world <laughs> rankings, like, man, Nate Brandon from Cambridge, Ontario is behind two Kenyans, a Russian, and, and I don't know who the other guy was, but Yuri Borzakovsky was one of the guys in front of me, and he won the Olympics in, in 2004. So it's kind of funny when you're like, oh, man, I, I actually can compete against the, the best in the world. I don't know if I so much competed to... I guess I, I competed to see how good I could be against the world. And that, that was the big thing that always got me going. And like you said, at Big Ten, to me, Big Ten made as much of a big deal as, as nationals or any other thing because I was competing. Yeah, I always wanted to see how good I could be against the other people. And so, yeah, I guess it was high school when I was like, yeah, I can, I can do something. And then when I won my first national title in college as a sophomore, I won NCAAs in the 800 that was kind of that turning point. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm one of those guys now that are kind of at the top of my game. T, how about you? Well, for me, cause you go to Michigan and everyone's a state champion. Everyone's a multiple, you know, multi event, well, middle distance, 800, 1500 conference champion. So, you know, had I chosen one of the max schools that I was looking at, I might've been one of the best on the team, but so at Michigan, I mean, everyone's running, as fast or faster than you. So yeah, I got put in my place quickly <laughs> and I didn't run cross country in high school, but I did in college. So obviously I learned to enjoy cross country, even though it was not my forte, but yeah, I mean, I had always wanted, my goal was to break 210 in college and I did. I, I definitely could have, I know I could have ran faster. I had more in me but I mean it was just the level of competition you know at, I mean at practice every practice was a race and you know it was just like when you step foot on campus at a school like Michigan and you have that many strong girls around you that are better than you yeah you're just like whoa I'm in a totally different league here but that's the Big Ten and that's why you know I chose to to go there. Yeah, I think one of the things that I was really struck by when I was watching, you know, both of you guys really competing, both at practice and then in, you know, both in, 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 and then in competition. One key was what you mentioned at practice. I was surprised at how hard the women's practice was in terms of yeah. like the effort that was put out. I don't, when I would watch a lot of our guys run, and Nate, I didn't really, a lot of times our, our practice times didn't kind of overlap. But when I saw the, guy, the guys run, it didn't seem like there was that same kind of like push-pull like the women's program had. They just, there seemed to be so much more depth in the women's program that there was like everybody, like I just remember just watching the, like the line. It was just like everybody was like running in the same pace. And I was like, how is that possible? I thought it was remarkable. I thought it was absolutely remarkable. Yeah, I mean... Well, McGuire did a good job recruiting 
you know, we had a really strong middle distance team. But then even like Coach Henry, who's the head coach, I mean, he stacked all the events. And, you know, what we were talking about before, like the team dynamic, I mean, before every meet or even after every meet, you know, we'd have a team meeting and we'd do some team bonding. And then after at the end of the meet, we had to say what we noticed as what someone else did outside of our event. So, you know, it made us pay attention and like, you know, we called out, you know, a, a PR in the discus or a hurdler, you know, which was obviously not my event, but it kind of brought us together. And I think that was, it was more of a family atmosphere, definitely on the women's side, which I thought was great. Yeah, you could definitely see it. They were definitely more of a team than we were. It's funny because Ron recruits individuals where Mike and Coach Henry recruited teams. Right. And so that's, that's one thing we always missed. It's like, and we, we definitely, me and Nick would talk about it. Like we graduated with all, all these titles, but we're like, we, we never won that thing. We were never a team. One year we finished fifth at nationals, but we were third at big tens as a team. <laughs> so two of us finished fifth at nationals, but we were third. It's like, but that's how Ron recruited. And that's yeah. one thing I always, and it was bitter. I, I was bitter against the girls, pro, the girls program the whole time we were there. Like, we're better than them, but they win every title. Yeah. But we were better individually, a couple of us. We weren't a better team. And it wasn't until after college that me and Nick were talking, like, Mike McGuire is probably one of the middle, best middle distance coaches in the country. And we were too naive and, and I guess somewhat kind of full of ourselves and Ron to realize it, but he's arguably the best women. Well, he probably is the best women's coach in the country and arguably one of the best middle distance coaches all around. Um, but it didn't take, it took us a long time of growing and <laughs> maturing to realize that. But yeah, they like, we would have practice and me and Willis would go, go to the well and there'd be two or maybe a couple other guys in the team would be able to hang, but the women's team would have, 20 distance girls in the track. So all doing the same work all, all together. It's just much different, different atmosphere dynamic. How do you think, be, and you know, I can say this because individually I wasn't, I mean, I, I don't have world-class speed, not even close. I remember I did, Nate, I don't think you and I ever did a workout together, but I did one workout with Nick where he wanted me to pace him through, I think, I want to say two fifties. And I was like, I was finishing up a workout. I was finishing up a workout. It was, yeah. And he's like, Darren, can you pace me through some 250s? And I was just like, why are you asking me? But I was like, you know, I, I felt good about life. And I was like, yeah, why sure, why not? I can do 250s. He's like, I only need to do like four or five. And he's like, just, you know, all I need you to do is like, I guess it was like a jog, you know, and I worry, he's like, I'll, I'll catch back up to you and then just take me through again. And I'll never forget giving it everything I had on all the 250s and he was right on me. And like, I don't feel like I was that slow. I was just like, I was shocked at, at how fast he really was. And it wasn't just, I mean, he wasn't fast for a middle distance guy. He was just, he was just fast. And I, that applied to both of you. And I always found it interesting that like, when I would look at, I say that because one of the things that I had heard, and this is always just whispers, was that a lot of the times the pro, with, with how, with the talent that you guys had, you being Nick and Nate, like not everybody could like actually keep up with you guys. And so when they would try to keep up with you guys over a prolonged period of time, it would just like their bodies just couldn't handle it. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that that was the bad. That was one of the really bad things about the program that I saw. Not so much when you're there because you're so focused on you right. and getting better individually. But yeah, looking back, me and Nick had this discussion before where Ron geared every workout around me and Nick. Yeah, he did. And we didn't have to go 100%. We would get good, solid workouts, but being two of the top guys in the country, it's really hard to have other uh, guys in the team come on, work out with you. World. So they went to the well. Every By the day. way, yeah, it, it was the world, guys. Let's just be let's be more accurate there. <laughs> you two are the best in the world. Both of you made yeah, multiple so Olympic finals. We, yeah, we had guys that would work out with us, and they would make it through. And we had guys PRing in practice, like running personal best in practice to keep up. And it was good once in a while to do that, but they would do it day after day after day. And we just watched them not run to their potential. Right. And after you look back, you're like, they just overtrained. They did. Ron didn't, Ron didn't individualize the program, which burnt a lot of kids out. And that it was really kind of crappy to see. And then after look back and realize, oh yeah, that kid could have run way faster. Or this guy could have been a, a big 10 champ. Well, that's one of, kind of get stuck through. Well, that was one of the things that like, and I, I bring up my story because I remember thinking to myself, oh my God, like that was hard for me. It was like re- legitimately hard. Like I remember like my hamstrings being like tight after I was done. And this was like, I was like, oh my God, I can't be this out of shape one. And I know I'm not, but if this is what, and both of you would have been like, he was at the end of it, he's like, oh, this is fine. Ah, thank you, Darren. And then he did some like long cool down run. And I was like sucking wind on the, like, I was like, oh yeah, yeah, all good. And then I like lay down the track and like, I needed to stay there for like 20 minutes. So that, I think that concept of like team is interesting and, you know, kind of transitioning into like what you guys do now. How do you guys think, given the height of your athletic achievement, how that kind of, how did that push you to get to where you're at now personally and professionally? And how do you kind of, what do you kind of take away from a mentality perspective? What lessons do you take and apply from your time as an athlete, both as a collegiate athlete and as a professional athlete to what you're doing today? Well, as an athlete, I mean, you kind of always want to be the best. I mean, you kind of have that competitive nature. I mean, even in our relationship, we compete with each other just like on a daily basis, which I mean, it works for us. And because we were like, sometimes we'll tease the kids like, who's faster, mom or daddy? You know, like it's just in our nature, I think who it is. But um, I think in all my careers that I've had, I've just, you know, I've always wanted to be the best. And, you know, I'm a twin. So I've always been competitive because I always wanted to beat my twin sister. So there's that too. And I kind of gravitate towards successful people and successful businesses and just kind of, you know, you get that work ethic and, you know, as an athlete, especially track athlete, because it is at the end of the day, I mean, it is an individual sport, Mm -hmm. you know, you put in the effort and you're going to get out what you put into it. So, you know, you translate that into your career too, you know, and I, I want to be successful and each year, you know, because I've always been in sales, you want to sell more than you did the past year. So, um, so kind of get that fire. So T, talk to us about that journey. What did that journey look like coming out of college, just finishing up and then into what you're doing now? Because I know it's kind of, and we'll have to interweave the story with you guys finishing college, winning multiple national titles and mm-hmm. a lot of on the track success and even academic success. And then the journey from there to 
founding your renovation company that you guys have, being a successful realtor. Uh, Nate, you're obviously coaching right now at Arrival High School, St. Edwards in Cleveland. So I'd love, and, and I know our, our listeners are going to love to hear and want to understand the journey from all of the roars to having like the success that you guys have now. Yes, I think like T, T kind of nailed it right on the head. Like I always say someone that is going to be a champion isn't, it's not, you don't learn certain traits. Like you're born to like want to be great. Some people can, can get better, that. but there's just something innate in somebody that makes them want to be better at everything they do. Not one you know, of those. Like, yeah. Like no one wants to lose, but there are people that like some people me coaching it. right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So with coaching, I have kids that want it. So like the difference between you guys wanting, it's like you want me to, you want a handout want where I wanted it and went, just went and got it. So what do you mean by that? Went and got it. Bring us behind the curtain there. So a lot of people want to be successful, mm-hmm. but not a lot of people want to do what it takes to be successful. They want a handout. They want a, they want a state title. They want a national title. But there's a big difference between wanting something and actually going and getting something. So I came from a very, I had a, a, a modest upbringing where my parents worked pretty hard, but I definitely didn't have anything handed out to me. So everything that came to me is what I wouldn't talk. So being a really good runner in high school and like just having that desire to be better wasn't something I just learned. It was like, so what does that look like though? So what does that look like? Cause I can only compare you to, you know, Mark and I knew what Mark did to get good. Mm -hmm. Mark would wake up before school and run three or four miles before school, run after school and then do the practice that everybody else did. But by the way, nobody knew he did that. Nobody knew he did that except like a few people. And he and, and everybody would be like, oh, oh, Mark is just he's just fast. Bullshit. No, he put in the time that nobody else put in the time for. So bring us behind the curtain, Nate. What what was it that uh, that Nate did? So he probably he actually probably trained harder than I did in high school. I ran once a day, six days a week. So it was a little di- different. But I had really good coaches that brought the most out of me without killing me, if that makes sense. So right. we maximized what I could do in high school with the ceiling still sky high. Where someone like Mark maybe did a little too much in high school that got him to his 147 in the 800. He went to high school or college, got a little faster, but his ceiling, he was potentially almost reached in, in high school. Mm-hmm. Where I ran pretty fast in high school, but I was pretty much held back. And I didn't know any better. I just knew I wanted to be good and whatever I did, I tried to be the best at. So did you put in, would you say, one of the things that I find fascinating is this idea of like time, you know, time in equals success out. Yeah. And so would you say that you put in more time than other people or just smarter time? Smarter time. I never put in more time. So one thing I and I do a lot of talks with high school and obviously the kids I talk to. And one thing I always emphasize is that I, I was the best at the time, but we, we, we were before social media, mm-hmm. the internet was, you, you would be, you'd be famous. <laughs> so you didn't know what everybody else was doing. Right. But what, I, what I always tell them is I was arguably one of the best high school runners in North America. 
but I also trained harder than probably everyone. Not in the sense that I went out there and did 100 mile a week. It's just when I was on the track doing a workout, I maximized that day. Like I killed that workout and like I tried to make the most of everything I did. And my mileage was, was pretty low in high school. I didn't, I didn't get up in the morning. I didn't do that. I still went to parties in the weekend, which most people probably didn't realize that I was running that fast and still having fun. Um, but I made sure I maximized things. And I had ups and downs in my career where I went too hard and, and mm-hmm. took a long time to realize what I could and couldn't get away with. I finally mm-hmm. realized probably late in my career that it's not about killing all the time, but it's it's what you do on the track. You maximize your ability while, while at the same time taking the time for recovery and, and doing everything outside of just strictly running that's going to make you kind of reach that next level. So and actually, I, when I switched coaches is when I realized that I need to be smarter with things and, and use recovery a little bit more than just killing my body. So, Nate, one of the things I was, I think I was, probably one of your biggest fans outside of your family and maybe your the other direct teammates during your Olympic years because I would literally buy subscriptions so that I could watch your races uh, and then yell at the TV as you were going. So talk to everybody about the journey along that Olympic journey that you had because, well, you made three Olympic teams and then yeah. it could have made, I think the first one, you qualified your first year but didn't make it just on a time thing, right? So in 2004, I skipped Big Ten. I redshirted my outdoor season that year to try to make the Olympics. Right. And then I was rolling my ankle in May of 20, 2004. So I sprained my ankle. I was out for six weeks. And that, that kind of ruined the whole thing. So I was I finished second at nationals that year, Canadian nationals. So place qualifier, I made the Olympics, but I missed making the time. I hit the time the year before yep. in 2003, but I didn't hit it in 2004. So it was just a tough year. I remember that because I think you went to like three or four different events trying to make that time. And yeah, so I was trying to get it and then kind of flip forward four years because obviously the, the Olympic cycles every four years. Yep. 2007, the year before the Olympics, I was having some back issues, didn't know what it was and found out I had a herniated disc. And so at the end of November, 2007, I had back surgery. So open back surgery. I was out for four weeks, literally like in bed. Teresa <laughs> can remember very vividly, like she was helping me with everything. The first couple of showers, I, I couldn't even bend down to, to touch my toes. Like it was, and I'm trying to think in my head, well, the Olympics are in nine months. Hmm. Like I want to be on the starting line. And so eight months before the Olympics, four weeks post-surgery was my very first run. And I ran for 30 seconds yeah, and I washed for four and a half minutes. And so it was a long journey to make it, but ultimately I, I did. I made it back and, and made my first Olympics and it didn't go as well as I wanted. But my career kind of stems on setbacks the entire time. And you hear people like, I, I see like, oh, he got injured and this. It's like every single year for almost 13 years, I had something that, that set me back. And I always just said, if I can have one full year of training, uninterrupted training, I could be, I could be a medalist. Probably the biggest thing I regret looking back, it's like, if I could have just been healthy for a year or two years or three years, then I know I could have been on a podium or, I, or a run much faster than I did. 
I just didn't have those opportunities. And well, it you did in 2012. Well, like 2012 was the fittest I've ever been, and then I got tripped in the semifinals. Yeah, that would have been my year to win win a medal. Yeah, I remember that. So I that that was that was tough. <laughs> and it's interesting. I I think again, like I mentioned before, one of the things that for me that whenever I think about like you running. And like I said, I've followed your career so closely, largely because of, obviously, we're teammates in Michigan, and then obviously because of your relationship with, with Teresa and we were friends. And so I agree with you that I think your career is, it was so demarcated by this, by by injuries and like these series of unfortunate events that like, it, it kind of reminds me of like that that Ohio State story I was telling you about, where you were, you got tripped on the corner and then just came barreling back to kind of, I think you wound up placing second. And I think you, when you got I was, up. I was fourth. Yeah, I was 100. It was actually on the 150 to yeah. go. And I got up in last, 12th yep. of 12 guys. And I got back up to fourth and 100. Yeah, it was insane. The funny thing is, if you look at the result, there's an asterisk beside my name. And under the results, it says, fell with 120 to go. Yeah. Which I've, I've never seen that <laughs> result before. No, and they should have because anybody that watched it live went, "Oh my god," because it was it was insane. And I know I've always kind of looked at it from my perspective as I followed your career as like, like you kind of told the story of you've had these setbacks, but then you've always kept like just pushing and pushing and pushing. And between the three different Olympics that you made, I find it just remarkable the results that you had because you you started. I think what was it in. In 04 and then 08, so you started at the 800, then switched to the 15, right? So I switched right out of college. Okay. 2004 and 2005 are in the, the eight. And then my last year of college, I, I started running the 1500 meters in the, the outdoor season. And then right away when I signed as a professional, I signed as a 1500 runner. So it was with that anticipation that I'm moving up. And so I knew I was going to, but that's what they wanted me to do as well. So, all right, we got to, this is always something that I always found interesting. Why didn't you ever do that in college? Because I always felt like you could have, like you and Nick could have always done one, two in any two races that you guys ever competed in. So Ron wanted to maximize points. We we want to win meet. So Willis would run one event, I'd run the other. So 10 points and 10 points is better than 10 and eight. And so that's why he kept us apart. So like my senior year, I broke the national record in the eight, in the mile, indoor mile. But at nationals, I didn't run the mile. So mm-hmm. I had the fastest time in the country going to nationals. I ran the 800. Yeah, I remember that. It was just to separate us. So there wasn't as much competition between us two and going head-to-head in practice. So we could train together, help each other out, knowing on the weekend we were doing separate events. I um, see. And I was okay with it. I didn't mind running the eight. He, he would run the mile or the, the three-day. And I think it, it helped keep our relationship as good as it was because we weren't we weren't going head to head on on the weekends. Yeah, so there was it was like you were com- you were competing, but you were really helping each other out because there was two different events. Yeah, and a lot yeah. of times he would pace me in, in a race, and I'd pace him or, yeah. or whatever. But before going into that, we it's funny because me and Nick have talked about you specifically because we would always be like, man, Darren Adams is probably the one of the most talented guys that no. just never. Never did what he could have. <laughs> Don't say that. Don't it was say like that. you were either injured. <laughs> it's not or true. It's not true. Jump, I, jumping around all these, we, you would come back from injury and be able to jump like six ten or whatever. Not true. Or not, run a good two hundred. <laughs> like there's just never. 
that same. There was never consistency there because you were either injured or Correct. football or doing something so, stupid. We do. We did talk about that. It's funny because you're like you're talking about your your mediocre time at Michigan, but realistically, you could you should have been on the podium at Michigan or at Big Ten's as one of the top guys. Yeah, of course you never panned out, but I think my talent always kind of. Uh, I'm going to take the compliment, and I'm going to I'm going to play this back for my daughter, who swears up and down that I had no talent in it, and I was not well, athletic in anything. The thing is, you had so much talent that you got away with what you did, strictly on talent, because there was lack of workouts, for being injured all the time. Yeah. So one of the things that I always struggled with at Michigan is that like I never felt like, to be honest with you, people took it seriously. And so that's why I never worked out with the team. So like I always worked out, but I never had anybody to really work out with. And so like I worked out with the trainers. I never worked out with the, like the team and the, and the net. I worked out with, I went and played football for a year, obviously. But like, I always felt like one of the things that I was always challenged with is I never felt like people, like the group took it that seriously. And that's why I always kind of wanted to train on my own so that like I could get my stuff done and then I could be in and be out. And then just whatever. I, I love the team part of it. I love the guys. I mean, you saw me when I was around with the guys, I would have a good time, but like, it always bothered me that I felt like, I do think that we had a ton of talent on the team, but I always mm-hmm. felt like there wasn't, when, when I kind of think about it, and I think about like how I train now, like on my bike, you kind of mentioned it a little bit earlier. I was always kind of looking for someone to help me understand like what I should be doing for training. When in reality, I really probably could have just trained myself and like more so trained myself and probably tried to maximize my own talent if I really, really thought about that. But I never really thought about it that way because I never, I knew I was not as talented as you guys. Not even close. I knew at best I could probably get, like even when I was like, I I could probably get, I don't don't even know. I was never going to be as talented as you guys. I probably could be talented as you guys if I did the decathlon, but that never panned out because I got injured. But no, I really appreciate that. But yeah, I, that was the one thing that I kind of, and I'm super interested to see how the kind of team pans out now because they do have a coach that seems to want to coalesce the group around being a team. And I think that mm-hmm. that matters so much in terms of like getting the most out of every individual. But anyway, enough about me. Back to this idea. So you were, 2012 happened and then you came back and ran in 2016. What made you yep. do that? Because that was tough. Yeah, so... After 2012, like there was part of me like I, I can't go four more years because people are like oh next time next time, and what they didn't realize was the workouts I was doing that year were were the best work. There'd be a handful of people in the world that could have done it. Right, like I was just on fire. I would do my coach would give me 400 and I'd run 53, 54, no problem, off of a minute. And I was doing the rolling start or a flat. Cause there's okay. Saying you're going to do a 53 (laughs) just like that is, you know, for us slow people is like, uh, Oh, I've, I've done three, four hundreds off of four minutes that went 49, four, 40, 48, four, 48, 48, four. You're hurting people's (laughs) feelings on the side of the mic. They're talking about PR. I was doing workouts that year that I was like, like I'm on, I went to the Olympics thinking I can medal. Like I honestly thought, in my head, I don't know if I told anyone, I don't even know if I told Teresa, like that was how I, how good I felt going in. And then being tripped, I was like, mm. I don't know if I can go four more years because there's, even if I get back to that fitness level, so much can happen in four years. I could get sick. I could get injured. 
get to the Olympics and, and something goes wrong. And, and people in my ear kept saying, oh, you, get, you have next one. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. The, well, the fitness he, I have comes once in a lifetime. Yeah. And I knew that. And he sacrificed a lot that getting ready for that year because he, Gianna right. was born yes. in November 2011 and he left when she was six weeks old to go train in warm weather. So, I mean. Yeah, we literally did Skype calls every single yeah. night for, for bath time and bedtime. And I came okay. back a couple of times, but okay. essentially I was gone for eight months mm-hmm. with seeing them for probably a month total between that. So there, there was a lot I sacrificed to do that. And I was like, I can't do that anymore. And so my last couple of years, I completely changed how I trained, where I went, how long I was away from home. So I started doing like a go away for two or three weeks and home for two or three weeks. And as a professional runner trying to be the best in the world, that's far from ideal. Like I'm, I was here, well, 2016, I was in Northeast Ohio in April and May and we had sleet and 30 degree weather yep. and I'm on the Bay High School track by myself struggling to hit times in this crappy weather where my competitors are in, they're, they're in, in warm weather with training partners, with physio right inside the track, massage, chiros, and I literally had nothing, but that was the decision I made because I missed so much of my life, my, my kids and, and my wife. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm going to be home because I'm going to be happy doing it or it's not worth it. And so I, I switched it up that year. And, and ultimately it worked because I went in mentally fresher and happy with where I was at. Physically, I wasn't as, as fit. Hands down, I wasn't as fit in 2016 as I was in, in 2012. Right. But I made the final in 2016 through experience. I did a lot on my own. I knew what I could do. And I went in there confident. And I remember my coach asking me before the, the first round, he's like, how do you feel? And uh, I said, well, I feel good, but I'm either going to make the final or I'm not. He goes, that's a good way to look at it. I said, well, that's how it is. And I didn't care. I was like, this is probably my last year. I, I know I'm fit. If I make it through, awesome. Like, that's what I'm here. I'm here to make the final and see how well I can do. But if I don't, I thought about it as I've had a good career and this is my third Olympics and it is what it is. And I made it to the first round easy and the second round, the same thing. I was like, well, I'm either going to make the final or I'm not. Like, what else do you want to say? <laughs> oh, but then so, when he got interviewed after the final and he's like, maybe I'll run again. <laughs> like, no. I've had points between from 2016 to now where I started getting pretty fit and I'm like, I can make 2021 or 2020. Now it's 2021. Like I can make another Olympics. Now my, my heart's not in it. Are we breaking news? Are you going to try? No, no, I'm out now. But there was, there was a point in 20, probably 18, 2019 where I was, I was pretty fit. And then like Achilles injury would pop up or something stopped me. Yeah. But yeah, I was doing some pretty good undercover work. I was like, I'm getting pretty strong and give me six months, I'll make it. <laughs> so, no, I'm out now. So, T, 2016 was Seoul, right? That was uh, 2016 yeah. real. Real. Okay. So, T, talk to me about being a spouse and kind of, you know, walking this journey with Nate and, and participating because this was just as much a journey for you as it was for him. How, what was that like in terms of yeah, being that support for him? 2008, went to Beijing, and then we weren't married yet or engaged, but I went 
and London, of course, we were married by then because we got married in 2010. So I had to go. And it was the first time I left Gianna. She was only 10 months old at the time. But that, I mean, that was just an incredible experience despite, you know, the unfortunate, unfortunate event of him being tripped. But I mean, it, that was hard. I mean, that was as hard for me. Well, I can't say that because it wasn't me running, but I felt it was as hard for me as it was for him. It was hard for me to watch. I mean, when he hit the track, I put my head down and I walked out of the stadium and I didn't watch the rest of the race. And it was, yeah, because I knew like, you know, he had worked so hard. He sacrificed so much. He was away from me and his baby and missed all her milestones like in person. I mean, you could see him on FaceTime or whatever, but yeah, for him to be tripped, and, you know, you just saw all that hard work kind of go down the drain. It was gut-wrenching. But, but, yeah, I mean, I knew he would go 2016. That wasn't – I figured he would. And I I have always had the mindset where, like, your professional career is only so long because you can only do this for so long. Your body can't handle it forever. So you might as well put everything into it, go 100%. We'll be fine. I'll be fine. The kids won't remember. And they don't. They don't remember him being gone at all. So, I mean, why not? Why not put everything into it? And it's just such a short amount of time in someone's life. And, you know, to say that you were an Olympian and three-time Olympian, I mean, how many, what, there's 2,000 Olympians every Olympic Games, like, in the world of 7 million people. And you know, one of them. So, I mean, that's just pretty incredible. So, yeah, I mean, 2016 was fun because he was coaching at St. Ed's and they, they had watch parties and we would go and they streamed the meets and the, and the rounds and the whole team was behind them. And, you know, they even got the news to come one time and, you know, film everybody cheering and stuff. And so it was, it was nice to have a huge support system, you know, then when he was, when he was gone in Rio and, uh, yeah, I mean, the kids didn't understand it. One day they will, they'll understand. But, I mean, I lived every moment as hard as he did. And um, I didn't go to Rio just because it wasn't safe enough for me to travel by myself. So we just, I just stayed back with the kids and watched it with his team. And But, yeah, it was, I mean, it's, it's stressful. It's hard. But what are you going to do besides support your spouse and, well, and his dreams? One of the things that I remember thinking to myself, there's a couple things I remember thinking to myself. One, when you did get tripped in 2012, I said to myself, oh my God, for both of you. And then, so throughout this entire time, your journey had kind of started with Nick Willis at Michigan. And then you guys had kind of had the same journey, a similar journey through the Olympics. And Nick kind of, you know, did what he did at the Olympics. What was it like kind of competing together and and having, you know, both the, you know, the, the hard part of, you know, the personal experience for for you within 2012, but then also seeing, you know, his results in 2012 and then what you guys were able, you know, what he what you guys have kind of done both collectively over those three Olympic periods. So, yeah, me and Nick have been great friends since, since we met, but it's definitely been a little bittersweet. I'm not going to say that when, when he won his medal, I was, I wouldn't say I was unhappy, but at the same time, I'm like, man, that, that could have been me. Yeah. Like, if you look at me and Nick's college career, I think I lost to him one time. I never lost him in cross country. He beat me over the 800 once in every other event I beat him. 
So our record was probably 12 to 1 in my favor. And then post-collegiately, I just had so many ups and downs. And I, I would always, I, I remember thinking to myself, if I could just have Nick's clean slate of training for a year or two, I'm going to be right where he is. Talent-wise, I don't know if, if if you even asked him if he would say that he's any more talented than I am. Um, I think two of us are, are two of the probably some of the top talented 1,500 runners in the world. But some people just get better opportunities. And he maximized those. And good for him. Like You, you hear people like, and I'm not going to say this bitterly, but you hear people talk about, oh, he had, he had more opportunities. Yeah, Nick definitely did. But it's those who maximize the opportunity. Right. And that's, that's great on him. Like if you are able to get that opportunity and you, you take advantage of it, that's what sets somebody apart. And it's funny because we, when I was running my best were the years where Nick wasn't like my, the first world final I made was 2013. Nick got put out in the semifinal. So he's watching on the sidelines while I'm in the, the world championship final in Moscow or in 2012. He made the final, but I think he finished 12th or 11th that year in 2012. So he won a medal in 2008 and then again in 2016. 2004 or 2012, sorry, was the year that that was going to be my best year. And I know I would have been in, in front of Nick in the final. So it's just funny how our careers have aligned, but at the same time been opposite at, at some points. And yeah, like it's it's been awesome to watch him as a teammate do so well and also i'm not gonna lie there's times where i, I just got pulled along in, in his coattails too and took advantage of of what what i was able to, to get from it so one of the things that i you know it, and it comes off and just in both of and how you're kind of talking about your experience running is just the passion that you have for it so talk to us a little about about that both of you in terms of like how you're able to kind of convey and and have just that where does that passion come from to compete, what what is it? What where is it coming from? So my, me and T are completely different in terms of our passion for the sport. So I'll let her talk about it after. But I truly love running. I'm not a running nerd. I don't I don't like go on and and have to watch all the races. But I like looking at stats once in a while and just checking results. But I truly love seeing how hard I can push my body. Like if I'm at the on the ground at the end of a workout, I feel awesome about myself. <laughs> and so I like working hard. I like competing. I loved when I knew I was one of the top runners in the world. It's a weird feeling to walk around knowing I right now I'm probably top ten in the world in my event. And so it's, it's a unique feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And I I I just strived on on that and and working hard and doing workouts that I knew a handful of people at that point in time could do. Teresa, obviously she has passion for what she does. I'll let her talk about it now, but her, her passion for the sport that we're in was, was definitely much different. No, I, no, I loved, I loved running and track, but like if I go to a track meet now, I'm like, God, like I wouldn't even want to get on the starting line. Right yeah, I still miss it. I would, I would, I love, I would be out there in a second if, uh, I mean, I guess I would miss high school because I was just better in high school than in college. But you were very um, good in college too. Very yeah, good. but I mean, compared to high school, I mean, I could go out and run an eight hundred and win by what 
150 yards. Like, yeah, you know, like you couldn't do that in college. So, I mean, I still love, I mean, I still run every day. I still do workouts just because I get bored running. So, and I'll go to the track and see what I can do very slowly. So what does passion mean for you, T? Because obviously you found yourself in a very competitive career in sales, especially yeah. in real estate sales. That's tough. I mean, if anybody that, I mean, getting, being in a residential real estate sales is, it's tough. And so let's just talk about what, what is that? How do you kind of develop a passion for that? How did you get into that? Well, I think for us, because we had always, well, we actually, the first flip you did was in Ann Arbor. Nate's always, he's really handy. Like he could do any type of handy thing. So like, <laughs> it's not like, oh, are there- <laughs> Well, you're going to need to be more specific I, about the handy things yeah, you can do. My, right? Part of my drive was like, I can do anything that I want. Okay. And not, again, not in a cocky way, but that's how I grew up. Like, oh yeah, if I want to make the Olympus, I, yeah, I can make it. Like, why not? No one was telling me I couldn't. And so that drive or that thinking stems in every part of my life. So it's like, yeah, why can't I just put in a new floor, tile a bathroom or, or whatever it is, you know? It's like, well, that seems simple. And so I wasn't afraid to try new things or take chances and, or yeah, this just this thought that I could do whatever I wanted to do was always there. And so I, I wasn't afraid to, to try new things, take chances and, and, and risk with, especially financially. Yeah. Well, and like where I'm at now in my real estate career, which I've, I haven't been doing it for very long, but like I'm the team that I'm on a really good team and we're the number one team in, in the state of Ohio by landslide. And at one point, I was like third on a team of over 100 agents. And I'm like, ooh, how can I get to first? Just because, you know, like, yeah, obviously, competitive background. And so now, like, this year was a really good year for me, even through the pandemic. And I'm like, oh, man, am I going to, I don't know how I'm going to do that next year, but I'm going to try and I'm going to try to beat it. So it's just, you know, kind of, I just always have that competitive nature and want to be the best and I get annoyed if someone beats me and <laughs> yeah. And I think that's how it is in our business too with our renovation business. Cause there's a lot of bad renovators out there that don't do it right. And we do, and we take pride in that and we want to put the best product out there when we resell the homes that we're renovating. So I don't think that there's anything you know, that anyone can do that's more community than, than real estate, frankly, because it's such a big part of people's individual, like their, their day-to-day life and then the community in general. So how does, you know, Nate, obviously with coaching, you're, you're a big part of, you know, there's, there's one part of the community in terms of being a coach at St. Edwards. And then there's this, this part where you guys are really actively involved in really improving and gentrifying communities by improving their real estate experience within different communities. So talk to me about what, what does it mean to be a part of a community for you guys now and what keeps you guys engaged in your community today? Sure. Yeah. So for me, it's, it's obviously much different than Teresa because she's from Northeast Ohio. So moving here, I literally knew no one outside of her family. And so it took a long time just to, to build friendships and people that I can run with. Like you don't realize that when you move to a place, just having the, the luxury of somebody to run with is, is a big deal. Yeah. And so <laughs> it took a long time just to, to meet people and being thrown into a completely different environment. But yeah, it's been cool with with obviously joining St. Ed eight years ago and 
being the coach. And quite honestly, I, I don't have the time to coach at St. Ed's. Like I'm there every single day. I do cross country, indoor track and outdoor track. And realistically for our business, I probably shouldn't be coaching, but there's, we have a group of boys and every year I'm like, okay, maybe I should look for something else or like pass it on to another coach because I just don't have the time. But I don't have the ability to walk away from what I've started. And that kind of comes back to wanting to see how good I can be. And like, I took a program that was not, not very good. Not very good at <laughs> all. Not and, good and we're at on all. the map now where everyone knows who St. Ed is for cross country. We, um, we, the last time we made a state meet was in 1981 and I've made three. since We've been there. Um, I've won four district titles and we, we hadn't won a district title since 1983. So you, you, we're, we're doing You beat stuff. up on my cats. You made me upset here. <laughs> <laughs> we yeah. haven't beat St. Ignatius yet in, in cross country. So that's something we want to do. But um, yeah, it's been cool being part of a community and, and meeting new people and um, building this rivalry with, with St. Ignatius. I came in and people were like, so what do you think about them? I'm like, I don't know. Like, I'm like, you guys remember, I don't have a rivalry with them. I don't know who St. <laughs> Ed's and St. Ignatius are. I just coach here. And so it's, it's been fun building this this friendly rivalry with the, the team down the street and um, being part of, of that community and also starting to flip homes on kind of the west side of, of Cleveland. And um, yeah, it's been fun. So one of the, th- and you guys know this just by just, happenstance. So I'm one of maybe a few people that have graced both places. So I, my, <laughs> my, my junior year, I went to St. Ed's for a semester and then I transferred to St. Ed's for a semester. And then we'll say due to just probably the drive, we'll, we'll blame it on the drive. I transferred back to Ignatius, which by the way, it's only 25, it's like 15 minutes away from each other. So I, I understand both communities, you know, pretty well. And I absolutely love St. Ed's because I think the communities and, and the customers uh, that they that both that both institutions serve are different. And their mm-hmm. missions are yeah. relatively similar, but the communities they serve are different. And I think what Ed's does in, in terms of providing a great, I, I love the atmosphere at Ed's. You know, it, to me, it, it, it reminded me of just a great group of guys that are just like, they're, they're just, genuine salt of the earth kind of great guys. Not saying St. Ignatius isn't, because it is. But I think there's a there's a difference in the two communities. And I think I love the idea that you're you're helping out that community and, and helping them get competitive because I think you can you could become like an herbis over there for what they did for wrestling. You could do that for their for their track program. Easy. Yeah, Easy. I, I don't know if I could be around there for <laughs> sixty years later like like Herbis, but clear. Yeah, like you said, it's definitely two unique schools. And I don't know, I've, I've always tried to think of pinpoint what it is. Ed's is definitely more blue collar. And not that a blue collar family is, is that much different than a family that comes from a much wealthier background or, or whatever richer background. But it seems like when you have that hardworking blue collar family, you just, the kids they raise are different. and. We get a lot of those kids that, that maybe it's a chip on their shoulder, whatever you want to call it. They come in and just want to work really hard. And then the size of the school, where Ed's is probably 30% smaller than, than Ignatius. So right there, 
that that lends to being a little closer. Mm-hmm. When you have a school of 1,200 kids compared to 800 kids, typically that smaller school, more people are going to know each other. Yep. And the big thing at Ed's is they talk about brotherhood. And, and I never really understood what that meant until I got there. And there's definitely a brotherhood where you have guys that walking down the hall shouldn't be hanging out with each, with each other or friends are close friends. And it's just a unique experience from like, how do you know the star of the football team? I'm like, you're a geeky cross country runner. And I'm, I'm not trying to put down my cross country runners, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Sure. And like, how are you guys friends? You're like, oh, I have them in my whatever Spanish class. And, and there's just this unique group of boys that are all there to get better in whatever they're doing, academics or athletics. And there's a, a big respect level across the board. It, and I'm not saying Ignatius doesn't have that, but with 1,200, 1,300 kids. No, it's different. There lends to be that the, the thought that they're not as close because you're one of a bunch instead of one of a, a smaller group. Yeah, I, I don't know what it is, and, and you might you closer to it than, than I am. Obviously, I haven't done, done it for eight years, but I do remember, you know, obviously distinctly being there for a semester. The experience that I had there was different than the experience that I had at Ignatius. And, and again, the community is different, and then the, 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 groups, the group of people there that was different, you know, again, n- not one's better than the other. But I, I do distinctly remember in, in thinking what you talked about, there was a different kind of crossover experience that happened at Ed's because it did seem like, I remember I, for, for whatever reason, I wound up joining, I was like, I would stay at the, uh, in the library and in the library after school, there was the chess club. And so then somehow or another, I wound up just hanging out with the chess guys for a little bit. And then some of the football guys would come in, some basketball guys would come in and you just get this cross section of people that you would never expect to hang out, but they would just be in there hanging out. And I feel like that was a relatively unique experience to add. So that I think that that's, you know, it sounds like that community feel is continuing on there, which is, I, I think is fantastic. Yeah, it definitely is. So last question, guys. One of the things that we love to talk about here is this idea of seeking success versus seeking simplicity. Two questions. We always got to hit the regrets question. But what, what does that mean for you guys? What does that mean to seek success versus seeking simplicity for you guys? It's a toughie. <gasps> I know, it's um, a toughie. Everybody always goes, what? <laughs> What does that well, mean? I mean, in our business, there's nothing simple about it. And it's, it's super high risk. Like right now, we're taking on the biggest project that we've ever had. And Ooh, if it wait. doesn't sell quickly. You got to tell us about it, it. What's the project? Yeah, it's in Avon Lake on the lake. So it's a lakefront property. It's the most expensive home we've, we've purchased and that we're renovating. So it's a fixture up, a million dollar fixture up. Right. Yes. Whoa. So I, okay. Yes. We're sitting on this property, putting a lot of change into it. And, you know, we're hoping the luxury market tends to sit a little bit longer because obviously your buyer pool isn't as much as like a $250,000 house. Sure. So, you know, we're hoping that it doesn't sit for too long and we can get our return and move on to our next project. But we always wanted to do one on the lake. And, you know, we're only three years in and it's gone well so far. So this was, this was a good opportunity we couldn't pass up. So obviously, I mean, there's nothing simple about it. It's um, definitely reaching for the stars for this one. And I think it, we think we're confident it's going to be successful and sold quickly and set us up for bigger things in the future. 
So what was the question again? The difference between simplicity and, and success? Yeah. So what does that mean for you guys? So in terms of just like how you guys choose to to want to live, I know we talked a lot about your professional running career and the success that you've had, and we'll detail that in both the intro and the outro. But what does that mean in terms of like just either continuing to chase that brass ring versus I like what I've got or I'm, I'm, I'm content doing X? See, I, I wish I could be content doing whatever. The problem is whatever I was born with won't allow that to happen. Okay. And so I want to be the best at whatever I do. And I, I tell people all the time, like the hardest thing with retiring from track was that I knew whatever I do in my future, I will not be as good at as I was at running. And that's Ooh. a tough pill to swallow, right? Wait, you wait, think wait, about wait. it. How, how are you going to, how would you ever gauge that? That's a tough thing to gauge because you, I mean. Because I always look at it as if I was as good at anything outside of running. You'd be a billionaire. Then I would be a billionaire. Okay. Right? Fair. Yep, you're, yep, you're I see what you're saying. Yep. We're top, let's say top 20 in the world in anything other than track and field. <laughs> about top 20, I'm a top 20 businessman. Right. And if I'm taught top 20 in economics. And even track and field, if you were the top. 10 in sprinting in track and field. Totally different story than a middle distance runner. Well, it's, it's pretty similar pay, actually, with unless you're the top guy. But you know what I mean? It's, it's very hard to be leaving one career, starting something that I didn't even have a plan for at the time. It's like, all right, well, I'm, I'm ready to move on, but I'm really good at what I'm doing, and I hope to be really good at what I'm going to do. And so that was tough, but... So how Even, do you plan for that success then? I mean, you, you can't just, you're, you're not a guy that just randomly I'm, decides I'm to do something. Risk, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm willing to take a risk. I don't mind getting out there, trying new things, being risky with the opportunities we make for ourselves. And I would say, like, if whatever you want, there's, there's the, the opportunity to, to get, right? Like, no one's telling you you can't do it except for yourself. And if somebody is, like, obviously ignore them, but my big thing is like, why couldn't I make the Olympics? It's like, why can't I be the best, whatever, real estate investor in Northeast Ohio or the biggest? So when we started why flipping, not? exactly. So we started flipping. I was like, oh, we'll do a couple of a year and we'll make X amount and, and be like, we'll be good. Like our life will be easy. And then I was like, well, if I can do three a year, why can't I do six? If I can do six, why can't I do 10? <laughs> I can make a full business and do nine or 20. And so there's this like, uh-oh, now I'm getting in trouble because my head is getting very, not big, like I said before, like it's not a cocky thing. It's like, why, let's see how big we can make our company and how successful we can make it and how many flips. And it almost becomes this challenge. Like, let, let, what, like, if I can, like I said, if I can do X amount, let's, let's see if I can double that. And so there's this, just this idea of the growth is now the thing I'm chasing where before it was like times and medals and, and track and field. It's like the growth of this business and how many sales we can do a year. And obviously still keeping up the integrity of, of our name and the business we've, we've built, but just trying to build it as, as big as we can. So there's no simplicity here of being like satisfied because in, in my whole career it was like whatever goals I had that I would hit like oh well that wasn't that fun 
what's the next goal? And so that's my whole life is like, well, what's next? What, what can we do? What, like this, the project run now is, is kind of fulfilling that. Like, well, we've done a lot of three, four, $500,000 homes. Let's do a million dollar home. I totally get it. One of the things that I've, I've always found interesting about that concept and, you know, cause my career is kind of, I think my career is kind of something kind of like my track career where it started off as just like this random, all right, well this and then, but I kind of like you, Nate, where I was just like, that's not good enough for me. And so then I would constantly do something else and then do something else and then want to do something else and then want to do something else. And it led to this and it led to that. And so I've, you know, constantly been pushing myself to kind of just be like, cause I've, I don't look at it as a, a, a relative to anybody else, but I, I just want to keep doing more because I know I can do better or I know I can, I know I want to be able to do more. And so I get like this, I get this, this like, like urge to kind of just be like, ah, oh, let's go do more. Let's go do more stuff. And so this kind of, I, I skipped it and I have to, I have to ask you guys this. You guys have to, one of the things that it kind of touches on this point, but tell us about something that's close to both of your guys' heart. It doesn't have to be athletics. doesn't have to be business, but what, what is it that keeps you guys human and keeps you guys, and probably a better way to paraphrase that is what does it mean to live for you guys? I know Nate, Nate, you might just say competition, but I want to answer it for you, but go ahead. No, I, I would say it's, it's, it's more the fear of failure. And so I think that that's the drive. It's like you, you can win things, and, but it's that, that fear of failure that, that keeps me wanting to, to do better too. It's like I have a family, I have two kids, and obviously Teresa's on here as, as my wife. And so I have people to support and that, that look up to me now. So being the best dad, husband I can be, or the best businessman or whatever, real estate investor. So it's just not wanting to let people down and, and fail at whatever I'm doing keeps me motivated to, to do better. And that was the same with my career. It's like, you can't only want to do well in races because you, you feel like you like the feeling to win. You have to hate, losing. you have to hate losing more than you like winning. Right. Uh, if that yeah. makes sense. Oh, Trust me, winning is makes sense. very short sighted. You can win. That lasts for five, ten, maybe, maybe a day. Maybe you're really excited for a week, but that feeling you got winning something trickles pretty quickly. That feeling you got from losing is going to last a lot longer and drive you a lot more than that feeling you got from winning. And so that fear of failure, letting somebody down, keeps me motivated and, and wanting to do better. T, how about you? Yeah, I mean, I agree. I always hated that question. Do you, hey. have, do you hate to, do you love to win or hate to lose? Because I always got asked that in every single interview and it's because they knew I was an athlete. But yeah, I mean, I don't want to fail at anything either. And, you know, if it's in my career or even with the kids. So, um, so this isn't about winning or losing, but this is the more the question is really for you, what does it mean to live? Because winning and losing is just pretty binary, but what does it mean to live for you? Was it traveling with Nate and accompanying Nate and being that support system for him as he kind of went on that journey through the Olympics, through those Olympic years? What does that mean for you? Or what does it mean to live? I mean, that was amazing. And fortunately, and I can say this, I didn't travel with him and I'm so thankful I didn't because I couldn't handle that stress and I didn't want to be a distraction at all. So 
So I was totally fine staying at home on the sidelines, being his biggest cheerleader, taking care of the kids and the house and everything else. So for me, it's just about, yeah, it's being supportive, just trying really, especially because of last year in the pandemic and all these bad things happening to people that shouldn't be in, you know, my own personal life and our life. Yeah, just trying to, and it sounds cliche, but really take advantage of everything that we have and everything that we built, try to, you know, embrace the moment. And sometimes it's not always the best when you're feeling stressed and overwhelmed. And, you know, it's okay to take a step back because you're still going to be successful. And, you know, as long as you don't quit and give up. But yeah, that's kind of how I feel about that. So living for you is this idea of kind of being a good support system, I guess, for your for your family and continuing to just enable a lot of the life experiences that you see your family having. Is that what yeah, you're saying? I, mean, I hope one day that my kids get to experience what I got to experience just through Michigan and, you know, even in my high school experience. And even if they aren't athletes, I mean, because everyone's like, oh, when are they going to start running? They're not. They're too young. Like, not. <laughs> they can start running when they want to start running. But yeah, I mean, I hope they get to experience, you know, the traveling that we got to do at Michigan and even afterwards and all those things. I think that's important and that's, that's meant a lot. And I think that shapes like our career and how we got to where we are today. And then just because, you know, a lot of husbands and wives can't work together. And I think we, we do a pretty good job. I mean, there are times I do want to fire myself and I'll walk out, but of a job for like hanging cabinets and I can't hold it any longer. But, you know, it, I mean, our, we have a good system and I think, you know, it's, it's working and it's successful and I think it will continue to go that way. Very cool. All right. Last question. Absolute last question. What does it mean to have regrets? for you guys or do you even have any or, or what are regrets for you guys professionally let's not talk personal don't 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 tell me personal right now i i, I yeah i have a ton of regrets i think everyone can probably say they have regrets but there's probably not much i would change to change those regrets the, the last four years of my running career i completely changed things to to be home like i said more with Teresa and the kids so part of me is like, what if I was where I should have been? Could that have changed the outcome of, of my career? Could I have done better, run faster? So it's not necessarily a regret that I hold on to, but it's more of like a what if. But I don't think I have very many regrets. I was, I'm very happy with where I chose to go to school and, and meeting Teresa and having kids. But kind of back to your question, what does it mean to live? And so part of it is like, Growing up, raising kids that, it's funny to say, but like when they go to college, they want to call me. Like they, mm. we have that relationship where on a Friday night, I just get a call from my daughter being like, hey, dad, what's up? Like that, that's what it means to live. Knowing we raised two good, successful kids that still love us enough to give us a call on, on a Friday or Saturday night. And that same flip side would be that regret if, if we don't build that relationship now with them where we're the first call, you yeah. know, they don't go to college and just want to party with their friends and 
they're like, oh, yeah, I should give my dad a call. It's been a month. And so, better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> but like, so right now, I, I, we'll I, edit I your answer, T. <laughs> you but can, no, you now can you have good. the chance. My, my, my answer was after yours with a different question. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know how sentimental we could be. No. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting. Yeah. I had kids, I think a little bit, a little bit earlier than you guys did. I'm actually much yeah. earlier. So I had this really good advice that I got from one of my managers at the time. And he was just like, God, I think it was like, what, 2008 or 2007 when I had my daughter. Or 2008. And he told me, he's like, ah, Darren, you know, one thing you've got to understand is your kids don't belong to you. And I was like, I'm not sure what you mean, but I understand what you mean. Uh, and I kind of was kind of like, I wasn't combative, but I was just like, I was like, ah, uh, all right, blah. And then over time, that's kind of stuck with me in this con in the context of just, I want my kids, both my daughter and my son, especially to be able to go and live their life. And Nate, to your point, call me on a random Friday night and know that they've got the freedom to, to call me about anything. It doesn't matter. It's dad, uh, I'm at um, Bell's and I need you to transfer like, I don't know, $50 so that I can get a slice of pizza, I, I, whatever the case might be. But like, that's what I'm kind of, you know, that, that concept of let your kids grow up to be who they're going to be, but always have them close enough so, so that they're you're able to have that relationship where they're going to call you at that random time on a Friday on a Friday night just to say, hey, hey, dad, how's it going? Or, hey, dad, I yeah, need yeah. some Bell's Pizza. Like we, we, both, we both experienced our athletic career. We're, we're through that. We had fun with it. We're looking forward to the point where we get to watch Gianna or Grayson at the state meet in Columbus doing what, what Teresa did or what I did and being their cheerleaders at that point. Like, that's, that's going to be exciting for us. Like, we don't need that anymore. I'm completely through that, but that's what's exciting going forward and watching Gianna follow the exact same footsteps as her, as her mom, because obviously I'm not from here, but similar context, just a different place. She could literally follow the exact same things, run the same track, run at the same stadium for the, the state meeting. Isn't um, she playing hockey exciting. though? She is playing well, hockey. Well, right now, yeah. Hopefully, hopefully she wants to be a runner. <laughs> <laughs> I love the Instagram where I can see her playing hockey and I, I see the random black guy and I'm like, oh boy, oh boy, here we go. It's amazing. I, I love it. I think that I, I love it. So I was, my wife was telling me about, she wanted Dylan, my son Dylan to play hockey. And I was like, I would love it if he played hockey, but he can barely walk and chew gum. So let's just work on the chewing gum part first. All right. T, anything from you? I guess to piggyback off of what Nate said. Yeah, I mean... So, like, looking back on my running career in high school and college, you know, my parents never missed a meet. At Michigan, they would even, they would drive up to Michigan and then drive to, they went to all the Big Ten meets, whether they flew or drove. And I didn't realize it then, how much time that was for them. Or, or how important that was to you. What's that? Or how important that was to you. Yeah, or how important it was to me. So, um, I mean... They start, you know, well, you know, they start sports way too early for kids now. Like we weren't playing sports when we were six and seven. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't ever want to miss any of that for my kids because I know someday they'll appreciate it. So I think that's important. That's what's living about is experiencing 
life through their eyes because it's so much different than obviously what we've been through. And yeah, that's kind of our drive, I think, too, to be successful in our business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the more successful we are, the easier it is for them to, to enjoy maybe the things that we missed out on or, or just to make their life a little easier. I love it. Or just have more time with them. Yeah, it's my my favorite comment that my one of my buddies did from grad school was like, uh, the one thing, guys, you can't ever buy is time, so let's just enjoy it together. So, mm-hmm. yeah, spending time with, with the kids is, is and to the point of, if you, know, if you have the opportunity to use your economics to do that, it's just great. So, well, hey, guys, that's our time. I want to thank T, Teresa, I got to call her T, yeah. uh, <laughs> and Nate for for coming on the pod i really appreciate you guys coming on sharing your perspective talking a lot about michigan talking a lot about our your post-college career your college careers and just giving us your perspective so thank you guys all right this is juice worth the squeeze thank you for listening well that's it for episode thank you so much for listening you can find me and the pod on Twitter at JWTS podcast and juice underscore worth underscore the underscore squeeze on the gram. You can find my guests on Instagram at Teresa Brandon and N Brandon, as well as renovate CLE. I want to thank Nate and T aka Teresa for coming on and thank you for listening. As usual, hit me up with any guest suggestions or any ideas. Thanks so much for supporting me in the podcast. I'll see you back here next week.